Hello, everyone. Happy Coronavirus Monday. Welcome to episode 11 of OSUZ 504's Freelance the Anti-Romance. Remember, if you like this story, it's available on Amazon.com and at www.osuz504.tech. That's osuz504.tech. Ozzy has a ton of other stuff up there as well, so check out some of its other works. And special promotion, today through March 27th, pick up a free copy of Ozzy's new story, Sun on Snow, also available on the website and Amazon.com. This one is another almost romance involving PTSD, Afghanistan, and a mild amount of human trafficking. Maybe some girl-on-girl action. Hope you enjoy it. Leave comments. Participate. It would be great. Aussie loves comments. Um, And now, back to the story. Section 3. A wizard should know better. Marcus stirred as a smell of rain slipped into bed with him, moving aside a couple stacks of books, which it promptly dropped on the floor with a bang. Sorry, it said, and snuggled in close, pressing freezing cold hands and feet against him. He hissed and drew it closer, inhaling deeply. Why are your feet so cold, Zora? He whispered into her hair and wrapped his legs around her, sliding his skin against hers, noting with intense pleasure that she had showered and shaved her legs, a rare treat, making her skin all the more soft. He also noticed that the scab from her bike ride still weren't fully healed. Zora, we have to take you to the doctors. Why? He nudged her feet. Your feet still aren't fully healed. It's been months, and you say they're numb. We have to go check it. No, it's fine. No need to go to the doctors. Hmm. He was too tired to argue. Instead, he buried his face in the curve of her neck, smelling the clean, sunshiny hint of her soap and laying his lips against the top of her breast. You taste sweet, Zora, he mumbled, drifting back to sleep. How can you taste like flowers in the rain? He didn't hear her answer. He woke early, just as the first blue tinges of dawn were stretching across the bedroom. Erica was curled in to face him, hair strewn out on his pillow, mouth open, drooling slightly. He'd kicked her out for a bike ride earlier in the day yesterday to take advantage of the last of the heat before winter and her pale skin had patches of strawberry sunburn. He could hear rain pattering on the windows and streets below. He lay there for a moment, lulled by the sound of the rain and Erica's steady breathing. He ran his fingers along the line of her hip, waist, chest, and drew one of her legs over his. She stretched and looped an arm over his chest as he drew patterns on her back and thigh. So soft, he thought, keeping his fingertips light, just skimming over her, letting her mold herself to him and raising goosebumps whenever he found a particular spot. He brushed her face with his, feeling stubble scratch against her, feeling her hair catch against him. She stirred, running a hand along his jaw and stretching out against the length of him. Good morning, she said, brushing her lips against his. You have morning breath. So do you, he said, chuckling, reaching a hand through her hair to feel the cool waves against his palm and cradle her skull so he could kiss her at just the right angle. Mmm, she said, laughing. Last night's dinner. Delicious leftovers. He did it again. She pulled him closer, tightening her leg around his and moving slightly up and down his body. He slipped into her slowly, as slowly as he could manage, listening to the rain and loving the catch in her breath whenever he moved. She leaned into his chest and neck, cradling his jaw as he kept finger-like patterns playing on her back and leg. He deepened each movement, drawing it out, trying to remember every sensation. The sound of the rain, the feel of her breathing, the smooth softness of her skin, the hiccup and exhale when he was inside her, the way she rocked slowly, extending the sensation, waiting, letting the rhythm build softly. It was quiet, almost still, when she gasped and bowed backwards, clenching down hard on him and surprising him with his own intense reaction. When he woke up again, Saturday morning was waiting for them. 7 a.m. 
Erica was still half-wrapped around him, back to breathing softly, head pillowed on his shoulder. He stroked her arm and disengaged from her, pulling blankets back over her, under which she promptly burrowed, becoming her usual shapeless lump. He stretched, pulling on his own sweatpants and t-shirt, walking out into the kitchen. To his surprise, Elena was awake. Coffee was made. She had college brochures spread out on the kitchen table and a notebook next to her. Good morning, Mika, he said. You're up early. Yeah, she sighed. He started breakfast. He'd rouse Erica in a while to stuff some food in her gullet before sending her back to bed. If she would just keep normal hours. Problems? No, she said. I just don't know what I want to do with my life. Robotics seems fun, but Northwestern isn't great for that, and I'm not sure I want to go away from home. Engineering seems fun, but New Mexico is a long way away, and I couldn't live with Grandma and Grandpa. I'd have to live in Albuquerque. Dad, how are you supposed to pick what you want to do for the rest of your life? <laughs> I don't know, baby. I just sort of fell into my life. Sometimes I think it happens without me and just tells me what went on after, as if I was floating down some great river. But Dad, it's my senior year. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? She leaned her head into his hand, her hands. He patted her back and dug out mugs for coffee. Don't stress so much, baby. You'll be fine, I promise. Just pick a direction and try your best. And if it doesn't work, pick another one. Just keep doing that until you can't pick directions anymore. He sat down, cradling a coffee cup. And in other news, it's your birthday tomorrow. What do you want to do? She shrugged. I'm a little old for birthdays, Dad. He sipped. Mm-hmm. Maybe just homemade ice cream and flan? Would that be okay? Sure. And you're going to let me ride the motorcycle that Erica is going to give me, right? I got my license and everything. Absolutely not. Dad. Elena. Please. Erica worked really hard on it. It's actually pretty safe since I won't need to go on highways or anything. And it would be great to have my own transportation and not need to use the trains. Please, Dad. I'm fine. This is only because Erica built it, and it probably has so many automated safety devices and protective measures in it, it should be in an Asimov novel. But pretend to be surprised when she gives it to you, and text me every time you're going somewhere, and when you get there, and who you're going to be there with, and no one else rides with you. She squealed happily and hugged him, spilling coffee. Too old for birthdays, huh? She declined to answer. Marcus opened the door to a delivery man carrying flowers. Delivery for Erica Kane? Uh, you mean Elena DeSantos, right? He said. Nope, says right here, Erica Kane. Marcus took the card. There was no sender information. Who sent these? The man shrugged. No idea, but there you go. Happy Sunday. Elena made a little happy noise as she came out of her room to see the flowers. Daddy, did you get me flowers? Oh, they're so pretty. He scowled, vaguely disquieted for reasons he couldn't quite identify. No, sorry, baby. These are... These aren't for you. Erica, you have flowers. No response. She was still sleeping after yet another late night. Why she could only seem to write when the sun went down was continuously baffling to him. Erica, lunch, up. Momentarily, a blurry and comfort-wrapped figure staggered out of the bedroom. It said, waving at Marcus and heading back to the bedroom. Nope, he said, catching a hold of the comforter before her next REM cycle. These are for you. She blinked. Why? I don't know. You didn't get them for me? No. Oh. She paused. It's probably for that award I won. What award? She yawned and tried to go back to bed. You know, the ones with the people and the things and the noises. Use your words, you crazy lady. Nebula. Another yawn. Best novel. 
He let go of the comforter. You won the nebula? She nodded. Oh, a happy birthday, Elena. In about an hour, pretend to be surprised when I give you a motorcycle. I have to sleep for just a little longer. Okay, thank you, Tia. Yeah, yeah, she said, yawning. Love you, happy birthday, sleepy time. He tapped Veronica's window. She motioned him into his office. He placed the press release on her desk. Erica won? She nodded. I thought you knew. No, she didn't tell me. Oh, she said, well, yes, we're having a publication party and awards celebration for her. Sales is putting it on with the book list people from Harper's and Hill next week. He gave him another glance. Did she tell you about that? Marcus scowled at her. Of course she didn't tell me about it. She's probably planning to skip it. Veronica gave him a cold expression. She's going. Tell her she can be as outlandish as she wants. It's great publicity. Every time she talks in public, her sales triple. He groaned. Veronica, please don't make her do parties. I'm not making her do anything. This is from sales. And we do like to keep sales happy, since that's how you and I pay our bills. He sighed. Why didn't you tell me about the award at least? I figured your girlfriend would tell you. He didn't like that word. Girlfriend. It made them sound like they were 17 and didn't know any better. It annoyed him. What is she then? My significant other? My partner? Both of those make us sound like we run a law firm or something. Veronica was looking at him. He cleared his throat. Right. Okay, would you mind sending me the itinerary or agenda for the party? I'll make sure she's there. Good, she nodded. And whatever you're doing, keep it up. She hasn't missed a deadline since you two started dating. She tapped the, the desk. Book six is due in a few weeks. Yes, I know. How's it going? Fine, he said, relieved. She's got about 75% of the draft done, so we should be able to make the first review deadline without issue. Good, good. She leaned back in her chair. You know, with all the attention she got last year and now this award, we're starting to get some crazy requests from people. Have you two been having problems with fans or publicity? He shook his head. That's good. Let me know if you do. Sometimes these things can get out of control very quickly. She picked up a pen and stared at, down at the hard copy of something, glancing at him vaguely surprised when he was still there. Right. Uh, thanks, Veronica, for your time. I'll just get back to work then. She cocked an eyebrow at him and nodded in agreement, making a little shooing motion. I'm home, said Marcus quietly, coming through the door and putting his stuff down. Okinasai, said Elena, sing song from the living room. Welcome back. He grunted, coming fully into the room and seeing Erica stretched out, face down on the floor. What's with her? No idea, Elena said, but watch this. Tia, what's wrong? Why are you on the floor? Erica stretched out a hand to point at the computer. It's broken. Marcus picked up her laptop. It was fine. It's fine. Still working. No, said a muffled voice. It's cursed. It's eating my words. Marcus looked at Elena, and Elena shrugged. He tapped a couple test sentences. No problem. Professora, he said, starting to get an inkling of what was actually happening. How's your magazine article coming this month? A, lone mo a low moan greeted him. Oh, I see. You don't know what to write? Everything is stupid, she said petulantly. Magazines are outdated anyway. Who even reads these things? It's due tomorrow. Just pick something. I can't, she said, grabbing a pillow and covering her head. I'm dead, mushed, brainwashed, sauced. You and Veronica have sucked my last drop of creativity out, and now I'm just a ruined, battered husk. Elena looked alarmed. Erica, you're still going to help me with my scholarship applications, right? A golden brown eye emerged from under the pillow. Of course, that's easy stuff. Whew, oh good, carry on then. Marcus rubbed her back. 
There, there, little monkey. Go pull some sections from your journal. The ones from your freshman year of college has some good points. Put together a nonfiction article talking about women in STEM. That's boring. Not for people like Elena. You'd read it, wouldn't you, Elena? Yep, I still need to figure out what I'm going to lie to these colleges about wanting to do with the rest of my life. Erica groaned. I'm boring. So normal. You've ruined me. Who wants to read a nothing? A flop? Just a lame nerd with nothing new to say. He glanced at the hallway. There are about 25 packages of mysterious things sitting over there. Did you buy new toys? New scientific testing equipment? A radioactive groundhog from Chernobyl? She sat up. You can buy those? He blinked. Uh, no? She sighed, putting her head back down, disappointed. No, most of those are clothes. Clothes? Yes, she glared at him. Since you threw away my sweats, I don't like wearing anything else that I have, and Elena gets weirded out when I walk around naked. Elena nodded. Yep, I get that bras are the tools of the patriarchy for female oppression, but I'd still prefer if you wore at least a shirt and underwear. I feel like I know you too well as it is. So you ordered clothes, Marcus said? Yep, for one of those shopping services. She scowled. But I don't like any of them. I want another foofy skirt, but I can't find a good one. Wow, he said, slightly stunned. You have domesticated. That's disturbingly normal of you. I know, she moaned, flinging herself back down to the floor. What is wrong with me? You never read your book reviews from Terra 5. You want to read them? No, these are dumb. They were pretty positive for the most part, he said, digging out his computer to bring them up. No, reviews are nonsense. As long as I get a check in the mail, I don't care if no one likes my books. Mm, that's a shame. This one says, A deep and turbulent examination into the human condition, framed with real science and real emotion. Isaac Asimov's successor, only with more heart. That sounds pretty nice. She sniffed. This is mental masturbation of the worst kind. Either they love you or hate you, or sometimes both, or think nothing of you. No one can make up their minds, and no one knows what they're talking about. Stop. I'm not reading reviews. Okay, I thought you might feel better about your writing. I don't feel badly about it. Well, excuse me. I thought the whole, I'm nothing, I'm washed up, was a cry for help. It was. I need experiences, Marcus. Do you think I could go work on an oil rig for a couple months? Absolutely not. I hear they need workers, and wouldn't that be something? To physically see the human race destroying itself? The cost to the workers and the land and... You're not going. Why? Because they'd send me your raped, beaten, and broken body Tuesdays after you die, and I have no desire to identify what's left of you. His voice was unexpectedly serious. She rolled up to sit cross-legged in front of him. Really? Really. So what, men just rape and kill things when there are more than two of them in a group? I know you have a very egalitarian view of the genders, and I know you're going to get mad at me for being a patriarchal asshole, but yes, men are awful. And if you go to an oil rig, terrible things will happen to you. She pushed her way to kneel between his legs, pushing a fingertip into his forehead. Are you sure? You look pretty normal, not a raping homicidal maniac. Are you that different from other men? No, but please trust me. Don't go work on an oil rig. She scowled at him. Hey, I'm sorry. I really am. It's nothing against your competence or skills or anything. You're just two feet and 200 pounds smaller than the sociopaths you're going to be working around in conditions that are miserable. Everyone is tired, depressed, abused, and then poof, a little fairy pixie gets dropped in their laps who just happens to trust everyone, is convinced rationalism and honesty are good character traits, and is a pacifist. No. She let her elbows rest on his knees. 
But that's what I want to experience, though. Depression, confusion, suffering. I could go work in the salt mines or maybe a fishing boat or... She paused, considering something. You know, men do really shitty jobs. Maybe that's why they're angry all the time. If we weren't in such a hurry to make them do some such awful stuff, maybe they wouldn't be so murdery all the time. She paused again. I want to write about that. Great, don't go do any of those things. Is that why Grandma is so against me becoming an engineer, Dad? Your grandma is overreacting. But you just told Erica I know what I told her. And in the computer sciences and electrical engineering fields, women make up the less than 2% of the total workforce, said Elena. He scowled at her. That's different. Why? asked Erica and Elena simultaneously. Because engineers are more rational. The conditions are more controlled. They're on better... Both women immediately interrupted him with a wall of noise, proving him wrong. All right, all right, fine. Maybe there's not that much of a difference. So why is Erica not allowed to go work on an oil rig, but I'm allowed to go be an engineer? I don't know, he said grouchy. It just is different. Elena and Erica looked at each other. I, kn I know, stop it, both of you. I know it doesn't make any sense. It just is. Erica trained her eyes back on him. They were more golden today than usual. They looked like swirls of planetary nebulae. Cosmic Sumum. What a great name for a band, he thought. What? Let's go to Tibet. No. We could cross the Sahara with the Bedouins. Do you know any Bedouins? No. Then no. He picked up a magazine. Erica's article was in there, and he wanted to read the final copy. Their book catalog was also in here, and he wanted to see what else she'd done. Tina told him she had another romance coming out. Why can't she just tell me about her life once in a while? Machu Picchu? No. Well, what's wrong with that one? It's too high of an altitude. It would take weeks to acclimatize. She huffed. Mayan ruins. No. Why? Drug cartels. He snapped the magazine a little for emphasis and retreated behind it so he wouldn't have to see her narrowed eyes. We could go running with the Tarumara and the Copper Canyons of Mexico. He gave a short bark of laughter. Professora, you fall over your feet getting out of bed in the morning, and you last exercised half a year ago. How far do you think you'd get? Besides, drug cartels. Not in the canyons. Of course in the canyons. If I was an illicit warlord making millions transporting dangerous substances, the first place I'd go would be these remote areas. He couldn't see her, but he was almost positive she stuck her tongue out at him. Fine. I'll mountain bike the Arizona Scenic Trail. He laughed, then dropped the magazine. You're serious? Yep. You suckered me with those other suggestions. This was your plan? Yep. He heard Elena snicker. Hush, don't encourage her, he told her. Erica, you've never mountain biked except on dirt roads and county highways. Trail riding is serious. I'm serious. No, you're ridiculous. That's very different. Hey, it's too late now. You'd get caught in the snows. I'll start in the north. You'd have to take a plane. I can take the train to Flagstaff and then get a bus to Kemab. He stopped. You've already planned this out, haven't you? Yep. You're going to do this in the next week, aren't you? Yep. You have an article due in a couple days and a manuscript due in a couple months. Yep. You have a signing party in two days that you'd have to attend. Yep. He narrowed his eyes at her. You've already packed, haven't you? She smiled innocently at him, got up, went to the bedroom, and came back with her bike panniers and kit. She put it at his feet. Yep. He closed his eyes. Sweet Jesus. Well, at least you told me first. Why Arizona? She shrugged. No one seems to have written a lot about it. Everyone's done the Appalachian, the Great Divide, the Pacific Coast, blah, blah, blah. 
But everyone seems to ignore the desert. It's perfect, she sighed happily. Wild, new, interesting, yummy. Elena was staring at her, obviously just a little intimidated. Aren't you scared? Of course. But Erica shrugged it off as soon as she said it. It wouldn't be interesting unless it was scary, and it wouldn't be a good story unless there was some risk. You can have safety if you want to be boring and tame and domesticated. I am so sorry Veronica ever said those words to you, said Marcus. So sorry. She didn't mean them. This will be great, she said contentedly, putting her hands on her hips. If you survive, Marcus said. If I survive, she agreed. Dear God, keep the magic users out of melee combat. They are too squishy. Marcus drummed his fingers on the kitchen table and gave another baleful look at his girlfriend. God, I hate that word. Mate? Ugh, even worse. It's fine, let's go. She ignored him, continuing to fuss with her bag, rearranging her notebook and pens, adding different notebooks, adding different pens, pencils, colored pencils. Professora, when are you going to have time to sketch at this party? Leave it. You're fine. You look great. Which she did. You have your notebook. Let's go. What if I want to use my brush pen, she said, gnawing on her bottom lip. It really calms me down, and I like the look it gives my notes. I better take one. She started for the bedroom. He caught her, pulling her in for a hug and making long, soothing strokes up and down her spine. She was wearing the black dress and blazer he'd gotten her, with her brilliantly beaded moccasins. Easy now. I know you don't like to do this. He felt her arms come around him as she buried her face in his chest. It'll be fine. You'll say some words, whatever you want. Isaac will seat you. Some nice people will come to talk to you, and you get to sign their books, and then you can go home. Mm. I know. It's okay. Sweetheart, you know I can't actually understand what you're saying right now. She nodded. Okay, good. He pressed her in closer with one arm and changed to rubbing circles into the center of her back until he felt muscles finally start to loosen. He pushed her a little far, a little away from him, both hands on her shoulders. She sniffled and shoved her glasses more firmly on her nose. Comfy shoes, he said. Check, she said, sticking out beaded toes. Notebook. Check. She pulled it out of the front pocket of her bag and replaced it. Favorite mechanical pencil. Check. Out came a green and white 30-cent pencil that she obviously, absolutely refused to go anywhere without. God help us when she finally loses that thing. I'll be lucky if I can get her to write a post-it note. Lucky rock, he continued. She held up a piece of picture jade. Check. He leaned in to sniff. Favorite soap? Check. Right. Ready? She nodded miserably. He kissed her cheek. You're a trooper, Dozora. Let's go get him. This time, Isaac and Veronica were ready for them. Marcus led Erica to a rear entrance, avoiding all people entirely, and had her set up in a corner of a room where she could take notes and relax into the crowd early. About two hours early. Marcus had a book. He was prepared, but it was still going to be a long night. Erica set up her laptop comfortably and started working. The notebook would emerge when the people started showing up. Marcus sat next to her, putting his feet up on the extra chair. How are you feeling, Professora? Strong? Fearless? A champion of the written word? She nodded. Yes, this is much better. Good girl, he said, trying to find a comfortable position in the awful banquet chairs. You're doing great. He tried to ignore his butt going to sleep already. People started trickling in. He went out to visit and socialize, enjoying talking about books with fellow bibliophiles, every once in a while checking on Erica. 
and sat like a serial killer, lurking in the shadows of the corner, scribbling furiously away in her notebook. Isaac came to, stand, came to stand next to him and handed him a drink. Both men watched her. She's like Aragorn, if he was tiny and blonde and insane, Marcus offered finally. Huh, said Isaac. At least she's not smoking something. At least. How badly do you think this is going to go? <sighs> Just record it. The last time we did this, you got a bonus. Isaac looked very contented. I sure did. We put the TV interview up on the press webpage as well. Sheer gold. Is she at least wearing underwear this time? No, she says it makes her feel claustrophobic. Isaac burst out laughing. Out fucking standing. I can't wait to see what happens. Are you ready? Marcus nodded. I have my Kevlar vest on under the dress shirt. God help us, chuckled Isaac. Wish me luck then, he said, dropping a friendly hand on Marcus's shoulder as he left. As soon as Isaac started talking, Erica's head jerked up. She very calmly got up and made a beeline for the rear exit. Marcus caught a handful of her jacket. Nope, he said, dragging her back. No running away. She unbuttoned the jacket as if to slip out of it, so he snaked an arm around her waist. Stop that. You're doing fine. Hang in there. It's no big deal. She struggled for a moment, reminding him strongly of when he took Kitty to the vet. He put another arm around her. To anyone looking on, this would almost look romantic. He noticed that he was starting to sweat and that she was a lot more wiry than she looked. Relax, relax, it's fine. You just have to do this one thing, and we'll go home, and you can put these kinds of things off for another six months. Her arms drooped over his forearms. He put her feet back on the ground and let her go. Fine, she said, taking a fortifying breath just in time for Isaac to motion her up to the mic for her speech. Uh, hello. Thank you for coming tonight to my signing party for the Nebula Awards. I appreciate it. He almost cheered. She seemed finished, turning away as if to leave before catching his eye. He made what he hoped were encouraging shooing motions that she should stay up there. Well, she adjusted her glasses more securely on her nose. As you all know, writing a book is a journey. It opens you up and rips out your most sensitive inner bits and flings your viscera across time and space with total strangers. When you never belong and you've never been able to keep your viscera inside you, this is fine. You don't know any better, and frankly, it feels great to know that something of you will live in the world for a long time. That something you created resonates, resonates with other people. That when you rip out that bloody mess of intestine and spleen, Several audience members had started to frown at this imagery, and a couple put their drinks down. Of truth and vulnerability, not everyone just devours it or throws it up into your face. Jesus wept, he thought. What's with all the violent metaphor tonight? Some people recognize it. It looks like the mass is sitting in their own guts. She took another deep breath. I write for those people, and I'm always sort of shocked that they still exist. And I'm still shocked that the press lets me do that, and that people want to read the bloody chunks I hack out of my own memories and experiences. Shocked and pleased. I mean, honored, really. I don't know what you call humility, vulnerability, hatred, fear, and need all wrapped up together, but whatever it is, that's what sharing this book was like, and the one before that, and the one that's still coming out. Every day I think today is the day that it all comes apart, that no one feels like this, that we're all alone. But each time, people buy the books. They come to parties like this, and I can't help but feel grateful, even though these parties are ridiculous and should be banned immediately. She scowled at all the drinks and food and the walls. I mean, look at this festival of gluttony just for a stupid book. If we're all going to be honest with ourselves, it's kind of pointless, right? 
that's just what we think about all of our emotions. We as a culture just shove down anything that doesn't make money or show value. We're so obsessed with quantification. But stupid things like tonight live in the squishy zone, the place where we all want someone else to write our emotions, to give us permission to feel those things, to show us a story that resonates with our own lives because we're too cowardly to face it ourselves, alone. Well, I want my books to give you permission, be pointless, but real, just maybe at fewer parties because I hate these things. She left the mic. There was a slight smattering of applause as she made her way back to the signing desk, and she sat down hard. Marcus stood behind her and patted her on the back. Okay, well, great. That was less funny and more universal goddamn heavy truth spouting. Not expecting that. Sorry, she mumbled. Obviously not sorry. No one came to get their book signed. Marcus looked out over the rapidly thinning crowd to see Isaac deep in conversation with someone in his suit. His face looked serious. Veronica wasn't here. Probably better that way. He headed towards Isaac. Well, that was a train wreck, the other man said. You guys get in a fight or something before the party? She was shoveling some pretty deep shit there. Don't I know it. I was hoping for funny, but Oracle of Doom showed up instead. Yeah, this probably won't be going up on the website. Well, at least she's not predictable. Who said being predictable was a bad thing? I'm sorry, said Marcus. Maybe we just do a press releases by Skype? I could get a mannequin and a tape recorder to just say stupid shit on a loop. Most people probably wouldn't even notice. He noticed the boxes of books unopened behind her. Jesus, what a waste. You're taking this awfully well. Isaac shrugged. I don't know. Every time I think I have this lady figured out, she does something new. I thought for sure I was going to get fired for her first display, but people loved it. I figure we'll lose a big chunk of sales tonight, but who knows? Things just seem to happen around her. They both watched a single lone figure walk up to get a signed copy, then another, then three more. Marcus got another drink. I'll be damned, he said to no one in particular as the beginnings of a crowd started to form. Finally, the last person drifted out. Erica was dead on her feet, her head on her forearms, worn out. Every last book was gone. Nothing was left but the bookstore employees and bits of debris from the party. Good job, Dozora, he said, grabbing her things and stretching out one of her exhausted arms over his shoulder before thinking better of it and hoisting her up on his back. You did great. She leaned into his back and made mumbling noises. He got them home, dropped her stuff with relief, and tucked her into bed, feeling a wash of deep contentment as he looked at her snuggled in their bed, surrounded by books. You did good, he whispered again. She didn't wake up. So, Erica, are you excited for your trip? Ryan was stacking his dice, bored, as she set up the map and changed the tokens around. Of course. I'm glad I'm going downhill. The elevation change would suck the other way. Aren't you afraid of being eaten by mountain lions or having to sew, saw off your own arm with a pocket knife? Yep. He waited. Yep, what? She shook her head. Nothing else. Yeah, I'm afraid. You don't have to go, Marcus chimed in. Your feet are still messed up from your last trip. Stay. No, she said, smiling at him. I can't. I know. Justin wandered in with a bag of chips and a giant soda. Look at you two, exchanging meaningful glances. You're just oozing intimacy. It's gross. Stop it. Erica cocked her head to the side in confusion. Justin got, just got broken up with, clarified Marcus, and now feels it's his right to be a dick to the rest of us. Where's Elena? asked Ryan, oh, so casually. Marcus glowered at him. College night. 
Yeah? She's thinking about Northwestern? Yes. Electrical and computer engineering, maybe. And she's still 17, so don't look at her. What? I can't look at her? Jeez, what's wrong with you? Justin smirked and set up his wizard's character sheet and dice. Marcus was a 21-year-old man at one point. Face it, you're just a big hormone with legs. I'm fucking mature, all right? You don't even know. Yeah, yeah, said his brother dismissively. Whatever, so mature that you need me to pick you up on Wednesdays so you don't have to walk home in the dark. Hey, that's a legitimate safety concern. Baby, answered Justin. Erica, you okay to start DMing tonight? You haven't been playing very long. Mm-hmm, she said, setting up the screen. It's just like writing, except now, when I try and kill my characters off, they can try to stop. They can try to resist. She bared a feral little smile. Notice I said, try. Dear God, she's a sadist, said Justin. It's hot. Shut up, said Marcus. It's only hot if you don't know how much pain she's capable of producing. Speaking of which, said Ryan, I read your last romance, Penelope. Damn, you're getting good at the sex scenes, like porn quality good. Marcus made a gagging face. Thanks, she said brightly. Marcus has been working through the sex reference books with me. We're going alphabetically. We're up to... <coughs> said Marcus, clearing his throat loudly. Oh, sorry. No, you're not. Justin sighed ostentatiously. You guys are depressingly happy. I can't believe Marcus is having more sex than me. What's happening to the world? Next we'll find out gravity doesn't work or that girls find a good personality more attractive than success. Erica perked up. I find good personality more attractive than success. He waved her off. Yeah, well, you're an alien, or an android, or some sort of sentient computer program come to life. Real women don't. Aw. She looked almost hurt. I believe the appropriate course of action going forward is to handicap your playing by fudging dice rolls and giving you debuffs all night. Is that right? Sounds good to me, said Ryan. Amicus, if you fucking kill me again this round, I'm going full rogue on you. I will stab you in your sleep. You hear me? I thought you were a bard. Aren't you just going to play some angry music at me, said Marcus? Bards can be anything, you know that. Just like your mama taught you. Shut up. Erica snapped her DM guide open and began. You are in a room beyond the double doors of the antechamber. The outside is carved with leering and laughing skulls. Ten feet from the door, a thick tapestry curtain hangs from wall to wall. Its embroidery shows a scene of merriment. Merriment, broke in Ryan? Who uses merriment? Hush. Merriment. Nobles feasting around a banquet table, a roast boar on a platter, and servants pouring wine. Another curtain hangs behind the first, showing the same scene, but descended into depravity. The nobles fight with each other, partake in carnal encounters. Carnal encounters? What is this, a Monty Python skit? Interrupted Ryan. Shut up, dork, said Justin. I want to be fucking immersed in a world of high fantasy adventure. Shut your pie hole. On the table or sprawl on the floor in puddles of vomit. Finally, the third curtain is a scene of horror. Nobles feasting on servants, eating each other alive and setting fire to the hall. The roast boar is alive and laughing on its platter. What do you want to do? Ryan and Justin had left. Marcus was helping clear the table as Erica put away the dice and maps and dudgeon pops she'd made for the evening. On his way to the kitchen, he saw her stop, hold perfectly still, and then begin to tremble, her knees giving out as she slumped to the floor, narrowly missing hitting her head on the table. Jesus, he swore, hastily dropping the dishes in the sink and kneeling next to her. Erica, are you okay? Her eyes were fixed open, and they'd turned black. 
two people stared back at him, obviously not seeing anything. After a moment, she blinked. Eyes returned back to normal. Oh, hello. She looked around a little curiously. Why am I on the floor? You passed out. Did I? Hmm. She struggled up to her feet, catching herself on the table as she seemed to get dizzy. Sit down, Dolzora. What was that? Oh, that, yeah. It happens a lot. He frowned at her. No, it doesn't. I've never seen you do that before. Well, normally it's not quite as spectacular as that one, but yeah, it happens two, three times a day. Erica, he said, coming to face her and frame her face with his hands. You cannot take this trip. She scowled at him. Seriously, you can't. You need to go to a doctor. She waved him off. Doctors never believe me. They always think I'm making it up or just being a hysterical woman. I tried a few years ago. Sweetheart, then they're assholes, and we'll find you a doctor who isn't an asshole. But honestly, with your feet and these dizzy spells, there's no way you should be going on a wilderness trip. Is this just because you're being protective? No, this is ridiculous. Why are you so possessed with the need to go on all these wild adventures? It's stupid. Stay home. We'll get pizza, drink beer, and have sex. It's great. And cheap. There are no cougars. She didn't crack a smile. I don't know, Marcus. I just need to do this. I can't explain why. He let his hands drop from her face. I have a bad feeling about all of this. You have a bad feeling about everything, she patted him. You just worry all the time. Relax, I'll be home before you know it. As she went to turn away from him, he caught her wrist to draw her in for a hug, letting her loose hair spill over his arm like a waterfall. He caught a handful of it, letting it slip like silk through his fingers and smell cold rain. Don't go. She looked at him, golden honey eyes wide and lovely. Don't make me stay, please. You fight dirty, he whispered and tilted her face up for a kiss. Section 5. Nobody ever wants to play a healer until the hit points start dropping. Day 400. Well, folks, it's day five of our intrepid explorer's adventure. She just checked in at Flagstaff and is headed south, obviously. So far, she's had 14 flat tires, an encounter with an intensely territorial black bear, and at least two interactions with human beings that make her miss the bear. So it's going well. She seems to have enough food and water so far, and she hasn't frozen to death yet. And the weather seems to be holding, so that's something. I miss her, and I have a bad feeling about this trip. Mom, if you're reading, I slipped a blessed image of St. Christopher into her luggage, because you've ruined me. And if it works, we'll never have to talk about this again. Fuck. He couldn't breathe. What? He had to choke it out around a knot the size of a softball in his throat. I don't understand. Are you Erica Kane's next of kin? No. Wait, I don't know. Mr. DeSanto, she's got your name listed on her backcountry permit. Are you her husband? No. Do you know where we can reach one of her relatives? He leaned against the wall, feeling an odd roaring sound in his ears. She doesn't have any. He put his hand against his face. It was wet. Why? Mr. DeSantos, I need you to calm down. Is there anyone that can come to Phoenix tonight? Phoenix? She's had an accident. She's still alive, but she's not in good shape. He could tell the voice was trying to be compassionate. Who, who was this person again? Everything was moving in slow motion, or maybe too fast. Couldn't tell. She's had an accident? Yes, please. If there's anyone that can come to make decisions for her, they should come now. Decisions? What kind of decisions? 
The last part of the word broke him, coming out as a half-sob. He leaned against the counter. Please, Mr. DeSantos, please try to stay calm. If you can, please come to... He couldn't hear anything. The phone was on the floor. Why did I put it there? He felt hands on his shoulders, but they didn't exactly register. Dim voices were talking around him. Daddy? He could see Elena's face swimming in front of him. She was kneeling in front. Daddy, we have to go to the airport. I've got everything packed. Can you get up? Up? He didn't think he could stand up or breathe ever again. Yep, come on, that's good, she said, helping him up. We're on our way to the airport. I need you to come with me, okay? Okay. He didn't remember getting to the airport or the flight. All he could do was stare at his hands, remembering the feel of her hair. Cool, like rain on stone. They seemed to belong to someone else. He held his stomach as something seemed to be trying to tear its way out of his guts. There might have been a car. His chest seemed to be two sizes too small, and when the hospital came into view, he had to gasp as it shrunk another size. N no, it's not real. She's not. This, it's, he had to put his head between his knees as the car stopped. Daddy, you have to get out of the car. Come on, you can do it. Elena's voice. He reached out blindly, and she grabbed his hand, pulling him up and into the lobby. He couldn't see. The roaring in his ears got louder. They had to lead him to her room. This room is too bright, he thought, stepping in. The light hurts her eyes when she's tired. I'll turn it down for her when... He took another step and had to catch himself on her bed. She was tiny. A tiny skeleton wrapped in someone else's bruised skin. No, he said, afraid to touch her. Afraid of her with her plastic mask on. Afraid of the stillness. No, I'm sorry. He couldn't tell if he said it out loud. She didn't answer. No, he said, running his fingertips along her face. But her skin felt long, clammy, sticky, transparent. He took her hand and leaned into her pillow, his lips against her ears. No, please don't leave me. Come back. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Mr. DeSantos? She turned bleary eyes to the other form in the room. A woman was calling him, youngish, holding a clipboard. Yes. Erica made you the executor. His throat was dry. Executor of what? Power of attorney. He didn't respond. Sir, I know this is very difficult, but she has a do-not-resuscitate order. She paused. She had an undiagnosed nerve disorder. It's affected her spine. The trauma she's experienced has started to shut down her autonomic processes. Who are you again? He asked thickly. She's Dr. Shannon, Daddy. Elena tugged on his hand. She's telling you that Erica can't breathe on her own. You have to tell them what to do. Do? He blinked as if it was obvious. Keep her alive. The doctor sighed. Her wishes say she never could take care of herself, he rasped, feeling her tiny bones fra fragile under his own. You, she can't leave yet. Mr. DeSantos, I know it's hard, but with her level of injury and... Why are you still talking, he said harshly. She has to come back. Very well, she handed him a set of forms. Please sign these. He scrawled something that could have been his name where she pointed. He didn't read them. Dad, wait, let me... He couldn't hear Elena, couldn't hear anything except for the feathery rasp of Erica's breathing. He leaned his head in so he could hear it better, hovering over her heart, so he could make sure that it was still beating. So weak. She's not supposed to be weak. An icicle felt like it was stabbing into his guts. He pulled a chair closer and sat next to her, his head sharing her pillow. Chapter 7 
the DM always writes an out. Section 1. You should have taken notes. The DM certainly did. Case file number 023708BG. Unknown baby girl found abandoned near intersection of Paseo Luis Alviarez and North Main Street at Our Lady Queen of Angels Catholic Church, Los Angeles, California. Date, August 15, 1986. Belongings, none. Birth certificate, none. General notes. Girl appears malnourished, approximately 10 days old, low startle response, no cry response, assigned to Hempley family as temporary foster services until long-term adoption. Case file number 023706BG. Date 01251987. General notes. Received request to transfer child back into social services. Child exhibits failure to thrive characteristics. Requires extensive hospitalization. Transferred to Child Protective Services for extent of medical care. New foster family yet to be identified. Transferred to Social Worker 333487 for additional monitoring. Case file number 023706BG. Date September 6, 1990. General notes. These notes have been excluded from the case file. Removed from infant care due to age, transferred to temporary orphanage until identification of foster family. Seems to be able to read. I gave her a collection of books from one of the older children, which she seemed to love. She seems very bright. I showed her how to write a little, and she immediately picked it up. She also seems to have a natural affinity with machinery. When I found her in the closet, she built a tiny city and a mechanical clock using Legos as gears. She has not made any friends and does not attempt any social interaction. She's still nonverbal, but I could tell she was really interested in writing. I have a collection of homeschooling books, notebooks, and pencils to bring her tomorrow. I've also identified a foster family that may be interested in taking her. For some reason, she seems to put people off. This is the third family coming to interview her next week. I'm not sure what the problem is. Material has been redacted. Supervisor approval number 7778002, September 9, 1990. Reason. Inappropriate comments. Case file number 023706BG. Date, June 11, 1991. General notes. Received request to transfer case back to social services. Evident evidently, individual exhibits failure to thrive, lack of connection with foster family, and disconnection with other children. Child refuses to eat, regularly withdraws from emotional connection, refuses to attend school. This is the third time the child has attempted to run away. Foster mother discovered her at the university library. While the child demonstrates abnormally high test scores, she still refuses to speak. With her obvious intelligence, the only excuse for her refusal to communicate at this age is willful disobedience. Child refuses to engage in physical contact, refuses to respect social conventions, and regularly has tantrums. Foster family has regretfully informed this office that they will be unable to continue to care for the child. A new family has yet to be identified. Case file 023706BG, December 22, 1996. General notes. Child transferred to Kane family and out of temporary orphanage care. Family has sponsored several other disabled children in the past and seemed to find the child interesting and fixable. Child is still underweight and height, refuses to speak, refuses to attend school. Kane family is certified for homeschooling and mother has evidenced interest in developing child's education. 
Child is a capable reader and writer and evidences high mechanical affinity, but still refuses to engage socially and refuses to follow basic social rules. Family has requested a birth certificate be issued for the child and requested that her name be changed to Erica. Dear Diary, Miss Liza gave me this book. She says it is okay not to talk, that I can just write whatever I want. She and Mr. Jim do not mind. They bought me a black notebook. There is a place in it to put my name. It is blank. He says my name should be Erica, that no one should go by BG, that BG means baby girl, and that is not a name. She says I am like a little queen, small but mighty. I don't know what that means. She and Mr. Jim picked Erica. It's from Norse. They are a people from an island across the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic is the second largest ocean in the world. They were Vikings. They sailed ships around the world to discover things. They built beautiful ships and weapons and homes. They are famous. Mr. Jim says Erica means eternal ruler, ever powerful. He says eternal means forever, and powerful means someone who can change the world. I think I like it. Miss Liza says I have to think about it because choosing a name is a big deal. Why? Mr. Jim says that names are important to tell the world about you. Why would the world need to know about me? Erica, me. It does not feel like me. But my stomach does not hurt around Miss Liza and Mr. Jim like everyone else, and sometimes I almost feel like saying something around them. So maybe it is okay to let them pick a name for me. Case file number 023706BG. Date, April 12, 1998. General notes. Child transferred out of CPS, emancipated minor, section 5, paragraph 3, now designated as formal ward of the state, has been approved. Supervisor number 001112, Director John Berman, notarized this day, April 12, 1998. April 12, 1998. Today is my not-birthday. My not-mother said so, but I don't like April. It's too wet and cold to like. Miss Liza said that I should pick a day that I like better. I think I'd like something in November, when it's all cool and the world is lit up in red and orange. I like that better. I showed her how to do her banking online today, and she laughed, and she said that I, she was glad I was going to college, that I needed something more challenging to entertain me. She said they were going broke trying to keep me in books. She's going to let me keep them all, though, and I have a lot. I'm not sure how someone gets into college or what I should study when I get there. Miss Liza said that I should do something really hard. I liked the physics book the best and had the most trouble with it, so she said maybe I should try physics. That sounds good. I just like math. She said that it's unusual for children to do multivariable calculus for fun. But I wonder what other kids do. Mr. Jim bought me the Feynman lectures a week ago. I've listened to them all now. He says that if I like them, I should go to Caltech. He says that all the smart physicists go to MIT or Caltech, and Caltech is closer to them. That sounds good. It can't be that hard, right? I scored really high in my mock entrance exams, and Mr. Jim laughed at me. Why would he laugh at me? I asked him that, and he tried to touch my head, which made me cry. Miss Liza said that sometimes people like to show affection with touch, but I'm still not sure about that. What is affection? What do you do with it? I'm not sure I get the point. The dictionary says, Affection is a gentle feeling of fondness or liking. What do I do with that? Does fondness mean that people want to keep you around? Does that mean you're supposed to do things for them? What behaviors do they expect from you if you are liked? Mr. Jim made me flashcards with facial expressions the other day. 
He said it would help me when I got to college figuring out how people would relate to me. It is helpful to memorize these things, and people seem more comfortable around me now that I've started to practice making the faces associated with each emotion. Mr. Jin says that it's just a different language that I need to learn since most of the human race speaks it. Okay. If Miss Liza and Mr. Jin think that it's important, I can try. Miss Liza brought me a new notebook. This one has really fine pages and no lines. I didn't realize I hated the lines on paper until she bought me one that didn't have any. She also bought me new sketching pencils and a pen that makes my brain feel like soft grass. She said that a magazine wanted to publish my poems. Why? I said okay, but I didn't really understand why everyone made such a big deal out of it. It's just poetry. Everyone can do it. Hello? Hello? The boy waved his hands in front of the blonde girl's face. No response. Hey, robot lady, wake up. She blinked, but didn't say anything. I think you're pretty, he said, waiting expectantly. She still didn't say anything, instead turning back to her book and settling her glasses more securely on her face. It was lunch hour. The middle school buzzed with groups all over the campus. There were sounds of laughter and shouting and all the noises that came with kids giving freedom. Except her. She was tucked under a tree, dirt stains on her hands and her skirt. It was bright purple, capped with a yellow t-shirt that said, Coronado State Parks are the best. Only the letters had faded and there were stains in odd places. Hey, dum-dum, said the boy again. Are you deaf? I said I think you're pretty. The girl squinted at him and then looked over to the gaggle of teenagers a little further away, all whispering and pointedly not looking at her. No, nothing had changed, her expression seemed to say. Why are you here, she asked. I know you don't actually like me or want to talk to me, so why are you doing this? The boy smirked at her. Because you're pretty. Maybe you and I could go out sometime. She looked back to the group, barely restraining their laughter. Are you making fun of me? Of course not. You're great. Come on, go out with me. I don't know why you're saying things that you don't believe, but I'd like you to go away now. She fixed her eyes on her book determinedly. Your pupils are dilated in a way that is unusual, and the way you're focusing on the group behind you makes me think that you're engaged in some kind of social status ritual. I don't need to participate in that. Come on, here. He shoved a piece of paper with a number written on it. Don't you want my number? She looked at it, then back at him, not touching the paper. No. He grabbed her hand and thrust it into her fingers. There. Call me sometime, he said, before strutting back to the group to more laughter. The boy started to tell a story. She could tell because of his expressive arm movements and facial contortions. She watched for a moment, wondering what that was like, to have people listen to you like that, to tell stories people wanted to hear, to belong, even just for a moment. She looked at the crumpled paper in her hands. Later, she hesitantly picked up the phone and dialed the number on the paper. You've reached Hardline Chat, North America's number one gay phone chat line. Try our new meetup service today and meet tons of guys just looking for a good time. She hung up. I'm sorry, Erica, I really am. Her professor looked at her with what she assumed was compassion. She appreciated that he was trying to modulate his voice in a way that should be soothing. She wondered for a moment if he actually cared or was just good at lying. Not like she would notice if he was bad. She took her paper back from him. Why? She looked at the years of work lying so unremarkably in her hands that had been so quickly rejected and shrugged a little. If it's not good, it's not good. Something was making her dizzy. Maybe she had eaten something off this morning. It's not that it's not good, Erica. It's a great theory. 
Unfortunately, this university just can't support that line of inquiry. We have to be sensitive to our donors' needs, and this particular line of evidence is problematic. And there are too many research elements there. You, you need to stop being such a generalist and really focus on a single topic. You understand, I'm sure. She stared at him, stress momentarily making her forget that people did not like to be stared at. He fidgeted. I do not understand, Professor. Please explain it to me. He coughed. Well, please don't get me wrong. Your research is meticulous. Your findings are very relevant for biomedical applications in the field. It's just one of our main funding sources is a silicon-based computing company. You see? Organic and light-based computing using biomimicry just isn't something that they're willing to invest in. And there are at least three thesis papers in your single submittal. It's too much. You also don't go into enough detail to support all of your evidence lines. General theory is fine, but it won't attract donor attention. They should, she said, opening her thousand-page thesis to one of the appendices to point out the benefit-cost ratio per kilowatt of computing power, she, power she's created. Her professor put his hand on the paper, stopping her. No, Erica. These are very good ideas, and I'm sure that you can rework it to represent a more traditional, optical perspective. The light transfer theory, in particular, is very conducive to laser research going on in the lab right now. Your research, she said slowly. You want me to get rid of 85% of my research and focus only on the optical information transfer within laser systems? Yes, he settled back. Given your age and inexperience and the fact that the primary funder of this research isn't interested in organic computing, I think you would be much better advised to follow a more traditional optical path. But I'm ready to defend, she said, letting her pages slip through her fingers almost lovingly. It's good work. I've incorporated some great experimental data from string theory and can test quantum entanglement and quantum computing in a cellular-based network. Not with me as your advisor, he broke in. If you want to complete your doctorate, you're going to have to limit it to optical information transfer, and you're going to have to do it under my research direction. But her professor was obviously agitated. Erica, cut out everything not related to our lab's work or you don't graduate, or you can start over with a new advisor. Is that clear? But my organic computing systems are... I've given you your instructions, he waved her out of his office. We really don't need to discuss anything else. I don't understand why you're doing this. Organic computing isn't marketable, Erica, he said a little softer. It's not something we can just appropriate money for. It's theoretical. It's weird. It's not something people are comfortable with, especially when the research comes from such a, such a young person. Stick to more established lines of research. But I thought science was supposed to ask questions and push boundaries, he laughed. Of course not. We have to eat just like everyone else. If our funding comes from silicon electronics, guess what we're going to build for? Don't be so naive. Go back to the optics lab. She walked out of his office, clutching her thesis tight to her chest, and wondered how good things could be rejected for being good. This was the first time her beloved physics had failed her. One tiny crack in the armor. She felt it like a stone against a window. A sharp snapping sound that seemed to come from somewhere in her chest. Attention, all personnel. Please evacuate test ground immediately. Optical testing systems will be online in T minus five minutes. Exposure to test conditions may result in blindness, seizures, or brain damage. Thank you. Erica put the PA mic down and settled herself more comfortably in the control chair. 
A concrete warehouse stretched in front of her, filled with a twisted donut of snake-like conduit and multicolored mirrors. Lines of cabling reached into the center of the donut like feeding tubes, and she had a momentary image of the thing as some great, hideous parasite sucking out the life of the building, a cancer grown in iridescent torsion. She checked the checklist she'd made, flicking off the preparatory switches. Emergency power on, lead electromagnetic shielding on, knife switch power cut, off but active, emergency fire suppression active. Her control room was a tiny shack of reinforced bulletproof plastic rimmed in lead and electromagnetic plasma as she flicked on the safety protocols. The air hummed around her. She saw the hairs on her forearms raise vertical, and she got the odd, disoriented vertigo that she always got during testing, which her professor said was just her imagination. The boys didn't like it in here. They also couldn't fix the torsion reactor. Considering that during each test there was usually some kind of explosion, someone who could pay attention and repair the multi-billion dollar thing was required, yet her name seemed to be left off all the papers somehow. Too inexperienced, just an assistant, she sighed. No one warns baby geniuses that one day they're going to grow up to just be average cogs in a normal machine with nothing but inexperience and failure nagging at them. I should have spent my teenage years getting drunk and having sex. At least I'd have better stories. She snorted to herself, reconsidering, as if anyone would have sex with me. She reached for the PA again. Attention, all personnel. Please evalu- evacuate test ground immediately. Optical testing systems will be online in T minus two minutes. Thank you. She clicked off the PA. She activated the torsion reactor, letting its insides warm up, changing the blue standby color reflecting on its carbon steel exterior to a yellow-red. She didn't know why she followed the safety protocols. There was no one in here but her. There never was, just her and this big reactor that never did anything they expected it to. She leaned her chin on her hand, watching the clock count down slowly. It doesn't matter anyway. She tapped her fingers excitedly as something occurred to her. Her professor never checked the results and had run this particular test about a hundred times. She bit her lip as one of the test conditions from her thesis popped into her mind. So easy to just tweak. She glanced at the clock. T minus one minute. She shoved her goggles onto her face and sprinted into the reactor room, frantically increasing gas amounts and pulling a cluster of hair from her scalp to jam in the reactor bed, sandwiched between the mirrors. Information can't transfer just in light. It needs a matrix or a structure to be read from the other side. I'll light the hair up in the plasma and see if the gas chemical signature and frequency are the same. Drake will never have to know. She resealed the reactor, activated the vacuum, just as the automated test protocol started coming online. She sprinted back to the control room, diving to slide behind the shielding, just not quite making it as the reactor spooled up and flooded the room with brilliant ionized light. In the control room, the polarized metal panels and plastic sheeting blocked her from seeing any of it, but here, on the floor, she saw an aurora trapped in the room. The air hissed and crackled and her skin tingled. She looked down to see red sprites, like baby ball lightning, streaking down her legs before disappearing into the concrete. It was beautiful, amazing, improbable, unpredictable. No one had ever reported this, presumably because no one had ever been stupid enough to sit in an unshielded radioactive reaction chamber. The red ball lightning reformed again around her hands, jumping back to her hips, her knees, crackling around her, making the air taste like burned ozone and sulfur. She inhaled deeply, loving the tingly feeling even as the energy numbed her hands and feet. The flashing lights faded. The reactor revved down. Its light changed from red-gold to blue. 
She ex paused, expecting something terrible to happen, but nothing. Then a sudden pop as one of the coolant lines exploded, venting pressurized hydrogen. And there it is, she thought, almost chuckling to herself as the constancy of fixing the finicky equipment made her feel more normal. She stood up, and the world dissolved into a complex cacophony of sound and fury. She seemed to be floating above her body, watching it fall sort of distantly. It seemed to belong to someone else, and she almost felt sorry for the body hitting the concrete like that, forgetting it was herself she was watching. She seemed to be caught on a breeze, wafting through the warehouse, through the university. With a thought, she seemed to exist everywhere at once. Thoughts and sensations from her, from others, all blurred together, and she suddenly saw everything, all things, nature revealed in a single stunning moment of comprehension where time stopped. Well, no, it didn't exist. Where the laws of physics became flexible, where the line between life and death disappeared and non-living was alive and alive was dead and dead was non-living and all things flexed between those states interchangeably at the same time, at the same instant, stacked one on top of the other in infinite membranes, where space-time seemed to fold in on itself in a myriad of chaotic cosmic vibrations echoing in the great void. Before waking up in her body with a monster headache and legs that suddenly seemed heavy and numb. But it was simple to shake off. She took a quick look around. No one was there. I might have gotten away with this, she thought, gleefully rubbing her hands together and headed towards the control center to check the results. Maybe I can just sneak a few more tests in before anyone notices. You violated the test parameters, Professor Drake stared at her in what she assumed was supposed to be intimidating. Yes. We can't use any of that data. What on earth possessed you? She shrugged. We were just recreating your initial test model that didn't work the 50th time, much less the 100th. I wanted to try something new. He scowled at her. You are not the director of this project. You don't get to try new things. You run the tests that I give you. She didn't say anything. He leaned back. Besides, you could have been seriously injured. We don't have medical data on what exposure to that kind of light and radiation would do to you. You're just lucky that you made it behind the shields in time. She didn't say anything. Erica, please. He leaned forward again, almost as if trying to touch her, and she automatically moved back. Erica, he continued, you wasted a million dollars worth of test time without a plan, without any sort of intention. She cleared her throat. Well, actually, I did have a plan. She stopped, trying to feel out if she should tell him about her organic data transfer experiment or not. I tested part of my thesis, she finally blurted out. The section about keying DNA to specific gas frequencies through entanglement by light? I tested it. She paused, breathlessly needing to tell someone, even if it was him. It was positive. It matched the gas signature. My DNA stored the frequency and the gas content in the exact proportion of the test, confirmed by the gas chromatograph last night. Isn't that amazing? Maybe we could test it again on one of the regularly scheduled... You what? The DNA chemical signature in my hair. It changed to match the gas frequencies, just like I theorized. Light can entangle heterogeneous molecules to encode for information transfer, and it can be done using DNA. He had gone very still. She didn't notice, wrapped up in the excitement of finally getting to prove her hypothesis. And I didn't get to the shielding. I was in the light reaction, and it was amazing. A red sprite and an aurora happened around me, and I could feel the effects. I don't know what it was, but I had this sense of being connected to everything, all things, at the same time, and then... He held up a hand. She stopped, surprised. Erica, none of that happened. What? Of course it did. I have the data right here. No, you don't understand. 
misappropriation of equipment, lack of research plan approved by the board, safety violations, none of that happened. Yes, it did. I'm very sorry, but these results are... No. He slammed a hand down on his desk. Erica, you're fired. Get out. You're going to ruin my research. But... You are under a non-compete clause. Anything you've discovered while working for my lab stays here. Turn over all your notes. But, no, you were wrong. Hysterical. I can't have some emotional female ruining the funding for this project. Get out and make sure to leave all your notes where they are. Your services are no longer required. But this is my field. How am I supposed to work anywhere else without a curriculum vitae of my research generated? Who would hire me, she asked. I don't know, and I don't care. You should have thought of that before hijacking a multi-million dollar test for your own interests. But the, but the data's good. It's worth... I told you to stop pursuing it. If you would just do what you're told, none of this would be a problem. But get out before I have to call security. She heard another sharp snapping sound in her chest as another long crack appeared in the armor that used to make up her life. She left, leaving her notes. She didn't need notes, after all. She could always recreate them, verbatim, from memory. None of the other post-grad researchers could do that. Or fix the reactor. Or think for themselves. The crack widened. I'm so sorry, Miss Kincaid. Kane. Miss Kane. Of course, of course. The hiring manager smiled peacefully at her. I'm just not sure that you're qualified to work for a consulting firm of this kind. But I'm a genius. He laughed dismissively. I'm sure you are. No, really, I am. Of course. However, he took out her resume again. Given your age and lack of experience, it's just hard to see how you would fit in a research firm like this one. You don't really have any qualifications other than your doctorate, of course. But I have plenty of experience in organic computing, optics, general physics... Yes, but honey, may I call you honey? He smiled again, this time trying to put his hand over her clenched fist on the table. She slid them out of his reach. His smile faded. Miss, you have to understand that simply claiming to be a genius for an anonymous organization on a proprietary project without any references is not enough. We could start you out as a junior researcher, of course, to let you build up experience. Would I get to do my own research at some point? He laughed. Oh, no. We do what the clients request. Very few of our personnel get to do actual research for their personal projects. So I would be underpaid by my, I would be underpaid my market worth by about 60%, not have the ability to do any of my own research, and be at the beck and call of private interests? He tried to smile again. Now, okay, your market value is very limited because of your background, and frankly, not many private firms have the need of a theoretical physicist, especially one as young and as untried as you are. You keep saying that, but I received my doctorate at 22 and ran my old lab for several years, she frowned at him. I do not think that word means what you think it means. I have plenty of experience. He glanced at her resume. Here, it says you worked under an unnamed research director at a classified facility for four years. He looked over the tops of his glasses at her. Not your own lab, but his. Well, technically, it was his lab, but I did all the testing, the repairs, the project setup, the equipment management, all of it. Ah, so then he wrote you a letter of recommendation to that effect. Well, no. The hiring manager looked at her with what she knew was pity. There you are. 
please try to see it from my position. Now, would you be interested in starting with us as a junior researcher? We could try you out on a contract basis for the first year to see if you were a good fit. She sighed. Yes, she stuck out her hand. I accept. She tried not to feel like it was resignation and defeatism shaking her hand, but groceries and opportunity. Faint hope. Erica looked at yet another passive-aggressive email from her boss, then looked at the marked-up attachment for a communication system that he wanted her to fix. As you can see, I went ahead and made the corrections that I'd asked you to make in version 2 that somehow never made it into the draft drawings. In the future, if you don't understand something, please address it with me directly as opposed to simply ignoring instructions. I know it's very complicated and you're still very new, so there's bound to be some transition needs, but I would prefer it if you would take more time with your work to avoid unnecessary revisions. She looked back at her markups and the drawing revisions. They were identical. He hadn't changed anything, just added a different name for the master control panel. She picked up the revisions and walked into the office at the end of the hall. He was there with someone else. She didn't bother to knock and didn't acknowledge the other person, just stood calmly in front of the senior engineer with her markups before laying them on his desk. You made a single revision in nomenclature to schedule item 5B, nothing else, but you sent me an email implying that I didn't finish those markups for you and ignored your instructions, and you copied your boss on it without talking to me first. She glanced at the other man, taking in his expensive suit and relaxed attitude intuitively. You must be his boss, she said. He didn't do anything and implied I ignored instruction. You should know that he has neglected to attend every single design meeting for this project, has routinely charged administrative time that I have used to complete the project, and generally been confused and disinterested in addressing the client's concerns. She dropped her head to one side, considering the man in the suit more deeply, and deciding that she didn't like him. What's your name? The man in the suit tried to smile, but her direct stare and manner seemed to have put him off. He cleared his throat. Wick, Evan Wick. He offered her his hand. She ignored it. I'm Donovan's supervisor, yes? How did you know? She paused, letting the details add up in her mind and name themselves in a way that would make sense to someone like him. I read a book on corporate socio and psychopaths and another on managerial skills rewarded by multinational corporations. You look like the examples in the book. He frowned at her. Are you calling me a psycho? He looked at Donovan, outraged. Is she implying that I'm a psychopath? No, 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 of course not. I'm so sorry. You have to excuse her. She's new. This is her first real job. You know how it is with these overeducated women. What do you mean, know how it is with these overeducated women, she said, feeling another small crack starting in her chest. What does education and gender have to do with anything? Nothing, nothing, said Donovan, standing to remove the markups and usher her out of the office. I am so sorry. I must have misread the version control number you sent over. Great work, Erica. Great work. Please just give me a moment with Mr. Wick, and uh, please make a note not to interrupt me when my door is closed. That would be great. I'll come talk to you later. He shut the door in her face. He didn't come talk to her later. Mr. Wick didn't come talk to her either. No one came to talk to her. Donovan emailed her a design request. She finished it. She was bored and cranky all the time now. A couple of the other engineers were sitting together whispering. She craned her head around the wall's corner to see who it was. The whispering stopped. She sighed and tapped her fingers against the gray plastic of her desk until her neighbor cleared his throat uncomfortably. Excuse me, he said. Please don't do that. It's very distracting to the rest of the office. Oh, sorry, she said, instead putting her feet up on the desk to lean back in her chair. He cleared his throat again. Please don't put your feet up on the desk. It's not hygienic, and it may upset people in the office. Why would it upset anyone, she asked, leaving her feet up. They're feet, not turds. Please don't use language like that. 
Language like what? Language like turds. It isn't respectful. Respectful to who? Whom. Whom what? Whom is the correct object of the statement respectful to whom? Oh, I thought you were saying something that mattered. My mistake. Why is it so dull here? She waved a hand to the silent cubicle filled nerd tank. No one spoke except for in harsh whispers. Several of the women went to gossip in conference rooms, but all the men looked down on them doing that. No music, no sound, no life, just dreary design after design request. Her wave took it all in. I feel like I'm trapped in 1984. He looked pained. We have much better equipment than in 1984. I only started in 1996, but the computer upgrades associated with Oracle are really quite good. And the advent of the computer-aided design and display program was a major upgrade as well. He fit his glasses more securely on his nose. You really should be grateful for the upgrades that allow us to work so much more efficiently. She looked around as if there was a supervisor listening to the conversation. Why are you talking like that? I meant the book. 1984, the book. The one where a dystopian military-industrial complex takes over daily life, making it a prison, until the only option is insanity or death. Didn't you read that? That's not really... That's not really my kind of book. I enjoy reading popular mechanics sometimes, or my wife's National Geographic, but only when there's nothing else to do. I'm not much of a reader. Oh, she said, at a loss for what to say. Trying to take in the worldview that didn't include reading, and she couldn't quite manage it. I love to read. Right now I'm really into manga. I'm reading one about two shopkeepers whose wares are actually trapped spirits that they loan out to needy people, and they have all kinds of mysteries and heartwarming adventures. Then the two shopkeepers fall in love, and the boy is very awkward, which I like, while the girl is very oblivious, which I like even more. There's one story where the scroll of the moon, um, that's one of the wares that they loan to people, since evidently in feudal Japan there were so many fires that people didn't even bother keeping their own things. They would just rent out pretty antiques when they wanted to impress someone. And otherwise, their homes were totally lean and minimalist. Oh, and the story is set in the Shogun period, right before the Restoration in feudal Japan. Or maybe it was the Tokugawa period. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'll have to read a history or something to try and place it. Now, I really like the minimalist approach, unless it comes to books, and then I just have to have them all. But anyway, the moon scroll spirit, no, sorry, it's the comb spirit that gets loaned to this young girl who's betrothed to a samurai, and she's about to become the head of the house. But she and her mother get in a fight, but then the comb spirit is able to soothe the two women and help the girl prepare for being a bride. Anyway, yes, it's very sweet, and the woman shopkeeper was very mysterious and feminine, you know, in the way that real women have, where they're just sort of beautiful and quiet and smart and seem to know all the things that you don't know, but are so poised that you know just looking at them that they are powerful, even though most of the time women aren't really respected enough to have any power. But that feminine quality just shines through. And you know that this lady can solve anything and is like a universal mom. Just calm and capable and the source of all answers and all beauty in the world. Anyway, this character definitely has that and I love her for it, considering that I don't have any of those abilities. And I wonder what it would be like to just have people look at you and love and respect you without a thought, just responding to that unique energy and body language that... The man ducked behind the cubicle wall and put his headphones on. Erica sighed and went back to staring at her email, waiting for another design request to come in. It only takes a couple minutes, she thought. She, I wonder why everyone makes such a big deal about it. The whispering started up again behind her, and she craned her neck around again, only to have it decrease in volume. Nothing in her inbox yet. Bored. So bored. I wish they would give me a hard problem to solve once in a while. Most of this stuff is just copy and paste with some vendor calls mixed in. Boring, boring, boring.
She opened up a Word document and stared at the white page, empty. Anything was possible. The page probably wouldn't care if she used an Allen Master Control Panel or an Avena. It probably wouldn't ask her to keep her feet off the desk or get bored with her. She could write anything. She laid her fingers on the keys. I want to write something magical, she thought. I want out of here, out of my life, out of all this. Book One, Section One, Prologue. One hundred million miles away from our galaxy, or thereabouts, is Rigel Cantaris, a negative one magnitude star famous as the best navigational reference point for star charts since the 16th century. I can see it on our navigational system as a shining red dot, like a ruby in a field of diamonds. It gives me a momentary kinship with a long line of dead navigators. I've always liked the night better, liked the way it gives me a chance to see the heavens all spread out and the way the world seems to go still and quiet. Here, out in the void of it all, I can spend the night like water running through my fingers. My viewing windows look into the maw of the abyss with Rigel somewhere in that nothing. Only the reflection of our solar sails sparking little patterns of photoelectric interference on the viewing platforms. Wings of light speeding through the black. Sometimes I imagine that I am the ship with great wings reaching out like hers. There are times it almost feels like a memory, not a hallucination. A whisper of sound behind me, and I fought against a burst of irritation. Pin. That's it, everyone. Thank you. Tune in next time for episode 12, and don't forget to check out Sun on Snow, available for free on Amazon. Have a great day.